Comments made on the Ceratoc Podcast Network are those of the individuals and do not represent Ceratoc Corporation, its staff, management, board of directors, or third-party resellers. Hi, this is Bill, and welcome to this week's episode of Real World Fitness. Got an amazingly high-energy, awesome interview for you this week. And it's a long one, so we're not going to waste a lot of time listening to me. This lady is very cool. Her name is Juliet Starrett. She is the founder and co-owner of San Francisco CrossFit, one of the very first CrossFit facilities in the U.S. She's also an attorney. She's also a world champion whitewater rafter. So we're going to get to that in just a second. And before we do, quick plug for that wonderful sponsor of ours, audiblepodcast.com. You know the deal, guys. My favorite source for reading material as well as very cool old radio programs and a lot of other things. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash Saratalk. Sign up for that free one-month trial if you haven't already done it. And I know there's a few of you out there that have, and there's also a few of you that haven't. And then select from thousands, and I do mean thousands of uh, books, old radio programs, all kinds of cool stuff on there. You get one free selection every month. Sign up for that free trial. You're going to love it. And then just keep on going with it because it's definitely worth it. A lot of real cool stuff there. Fiction, nonfiction, how-to, self-improvement, you name it, you'll find it there. And they're constantly adding more. That's audiblepodcast.com slash Saratalk. And my guest today, owner of San Francisco CrossFit, Miss Juliet Sturrett. Thank you so much for taking some time with me today, Juliet. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Let's start with your background. When I was looking at that on your website, whitewater rafting, that is definitely not your average. How did you get into that? Yeah, it's definitely, I would call it a fringe sport to be sure. When I was a freshman in college at UC Berkeley, I knew I needed to get a summer job and I wasn't really that excited to go back to my hometown and you know, get a boring job at like a retail store or do something. And, you know, this was, you know, it seems like nowadays kids in college, they get internships in the summer. It's not, you know, it doesn't seem like a lot of kids get regular jobs anymore. But back when I went to college, um, it was just expected by my parents and all my friends that we would all go get jobs. And I knew that I wanted to do something fun where I could be outside and get a tan And a friend of mine said, hey, you know, we should go to whitewater rafting guide school and become river guides and we can guide all summer. And so, you know, I I had grown up in Boulder, Colorado and spent, you know, my childhood doing outdoor type things. And so this was totally felt like it was within my wheelhouse. So my friend and I, um, we went to guide school. And so all throughout my college career, my summer job was working as a river rafting guide all over California and in Oregon and a couple other states. And simultaneously, though, I was a, on the rowing team at UC Berkeley. So I had this kind of combination of being, you know, sort of a higher level athlete. And then I would spend my summers on rivers. And in 1997, I was approached uh, by the U.S. Women's Extreme Whitewater Team to participate in a, a tryout for the team. So I really had no idea what to expect or what was going on. 
But I just showed up for this tryout and it was like a three-day event where we did all sorts of different rapids and, you know, paddling. And there were probably like 40 or 50 other women who showed up to try out for this. And much to my surprise, I made the team and I did not go into it expecting that at all. I just thought I was going to go see what was happening. And two months later, we were paddling at the national championships, which we won. And then four months after that, I was competing in my first world championships on the Zambezi River in Africa. So, you know, it all just sort of happened from a combination of my athletic background and becoming a a whitewater rafting guide and those two worlds colliding um, and sort of being, you know, perfectly united. And so I competed on the whitewater team for five years um, and we won five national championships and two world championships. And this is a very strange sport because it all takes place on these really hard, really scary class five rivers. And just to give you an idea, the all of the sponsors' logos would be imprinted on the upside, the bottom of every raft. Because, you know, while we were competing, there'd be helicopters flying through the canyon and filming this whole thing. And they were excited for television purposes for us to have as much carnage as possible um, because we were on these really <laughs> huge, really scary rivers. And, uh, and so, you know, when we would flip our rafts in the middle of some huge class five rapid, of course, all the sponsors could be proudly shown on the underside of our raft as we're like fighting to, you know, save ourselves. And uh, so what you're saying is they were paying for you to wipe out. Yes, yes. And I if feel you like, didn't you know, wipe out, sort of- their name didn't get shown. Exactly. You know, the way the the way their logos would be shown when we were upright just wasn't really as prominent and didn't show up as well. But man, when we, you know, when we would go upside down in a big class five rapid and their logo was like proudly shown on, you know, from helicopter footage, you know, it was very visible. So I did that for five years. And then it was actually at the 2000 World Championships in Chile where Kelly and I met. So he just had joined the men's extreme whitewater team that year. So he and I had never met. We'd never, you know, sort of crossed paths in this universe, even though we were doing very similar things during that time, we'd never met. Um, And so that's where we actually met was in 2000 at the World Championships. Okay. So all of that because you didn't want to work at Macy's. (laughs) Pretty much, yes. Pretty much. I knew, I mean, it sounds very superficial because, you know, when I was in high school, I worked as a lifeguard and I was really excited to work as a lifeguard because I could, you know, hang out in my bathing suit and get a tan. And that, you know, sadly, as superficial as as it is, working as a river rafting guide was sort of an extension of that sort of sad 18-year-old mentality. (laughs) But I will say, I will say that working as a river guide at that age was by far the most influential job I I have had and probably will ever have, especially in terms of my running businesses now. You think about, you know, like it sounds kind of, in, in some ways it can sound sort of like a goofy job working as a river rafting guide. But now that I've had, you know, many years away from doing that as a profession, I look back on it and I, I've really come to appreciate what a massive, you know, important influence it had on me because early on, you know, I'm 18, you know, I'm 18 years old. There's a bunch of other, you know, 18 to 22 year olds is kind of the range. Um, and we had, we were given a tremendous amount of responsibility. I mean, not only are we taking people down, you know, rivers, including class five rivers. So we're responsible for their safety in some pretty extreme conditions, but, you know, we were taking people on multi-day trips where we're cooking all their food and feeding them and setting up their tents and, you know, taking care of people's well-being for like 12 hours a day at a very young age. 
actually was a ton of responsibility. And then early on in my career at the rafting company, I became the manager. So that was kind of my first, you know, by 20 years old, I'm managing a staff of 50 50 river rafting guides, which is no small feat because, you know, again, people go into river guiding for a lot of different reasons, but it's not necessarily always because they want to, you know, crush the world and be the most ambitious person on earth. And so, so I learned a lot of really, really valuable skills that I attribute that I use now today in my own, you know, business dealings and operating my own businesses that I really attribute to to learning at a really young age from having that massive amount of responsibility. Well, as you say, at first glance, I went, can you say superficial? That was going to be my comment, but I was thinking about it as you were talking and I'm going, all right, she's dealing with getting, you know, probably unconditioned, untrained people on these rafts, getting them down these, these rivers safely. Cause you're dealing with uh, some couple from Idaho that goes, well, let's, let's check that out. And maybe not on a life and death, what are you, a level five category five raft situation, but still you're dealing with overweight, out of shape, middle-aged people that go, well, that looks like fun. So yeah, I can see you had for, for 18, 19 years old, you had a tremendous, tremendous amount of responsibility on your shoulders. It really was. I mean, I did not appreciate it at the time, but you know, I got very good. I I became very good at being a river guide quickly. So all of a sudden I was advanced up to working on these really difficult rivers. And the other thing that it really helped with is, you know, just learning how to talk to like every kind of person, because, you know, on one day I would have a raft full of like CEOs from Silicon Valley. And then the next day I'd have a bunch of like concrete pourers from Fresno. And then I'd have, I think that was also a really big deal was to, on any given day, I'm set up with a group of six people who I'm going to spend eight, 12 hours or even, you know, multiple days on a multi-day trip. And I think it's really valuable to sort of learn at an early age how to speak to and interact to people who come from vastly different backgrounds. And again, that was one of those things I didn't even think about at the time, but it was a skill I learned that I realized has, you know, really helped me a lot in life. Well, it gave you a social skills, which most people at 18 today don't have, thanks to their phone and texting and so on. (laughs) And B, it gave you an additional social skill in that you were usually dealing with people twice your age and you were in charge, you had their respect, you had the control over them. And and that in itself is is tremendous. Again, I I totally, you know, I think you're right. At first glance, it just seems like a goofball job. And I don't know that I really took it that seriously either at the time. And I I don't think I, it really hasn't been until sort of my mid thirties. And when I really started to dig my feet in, in terms of being a business owner, that I was able to kind of step back and look at that experience. I think the other thing that was a really big deal about that, and that Kelly and I have talked about a lot, I don't know if you've ever heard of the book, um, Stephen Kotler's book called Rise of the Superman. Kelly and I really related to it because it's all, you know, I mean, one of the things he talks about is the importance of risk taking and putting yourself out of your comfort zone. And we, Kelly and I read that book together and talked about it like in a book clubby fashion. And I think we, um, we both really look back not only as our, at our time doing, you know, river guiding type stuff, but also our experience on the extreme, doing the extreme whitewater paddling and how that really set us up 
again, from in our later years as we're running businesses to just be really a lot more comfortable taking a lot of risk because we really were putting ourselves in, you know, when we, we were, again, like these rivers, some of the rapids we'd be running on these rivers, you look at and like you want to barf, you know, when the moment you see it because you're like, there's no way that we can make it through that. <laughs> and so that was, I think that was really, I think that risk, that early risk taking in that kind of extreme environment was also really, you know, transformative for both of us and has had, you know, lasting effect in, in terms of what our level of risk taking is. Well, that's definitely a far cry from mommy and daddy taking care of everything. And as long as you get good grades and you get a nice little summer job at Macy's and uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, wow, I've got it. I want to do a quick kind of subject change within this. Okay, you were a high school rower, and that was obviously more conventional rowing. How do you train, other than being out on a raft in rapids, how do you train for something like this? What was your training like outside of being on a raft, taking your life in your hands? <laughs> we did do a lot of training on rivers. You know, one of the events in uh, this extreme whitewater universe is it's called a downriver paddle and it's literally a mass start and all the rafts go off and it takes about 50 minutes or an hour and you paddle downstream as fast as you can through all these huge rapids. And typically when you paddle through those kind of class five rapids, you know, you stop and you pull over and you look at the rapid and you scout it and you take your line, you know, and this is just sort of like gonzo all the way down. So in as part of our training, we did spend a a lot of time on rivers all over California, um, you know, the Tuolumne and some other really big kind of class four, class five rivers where we would literally just put in at the top of the river and set the clock and just paddle, you know, a, a river that would take someone, you know, on a, on a commercial trip would take someone eight hours to paddle down. We would just set the clock and paddle the whole thing, you know, continuously without stopping in two hours. Um, so we did a lot of that kind of training. So we did do a lot of training in the raft, but we also did a ton of dry land training. And, you know, we hadn't discovered CrossFit at that time. It was the late 90s. So, you know, we did more traditional kind of weight training and cardio, and we did a ton of running. Um, but we spent a lot of time on land. And, uh, you know, we knew our goal was to be as super fit as we could be because, you know, we had to not only be, you know, paddling with our heart rates at like extreme levels at all times. But then, you know, we also run the risk of, you know, flipping over in the middle of a class five rapid and, you know, spending some serious downtime underwater. So we had to be, you know, really super cardiovascularly fit and be comfortable getting worked in the water at the same time. So, you know, our training really varied. I mean, it's, you know, I look back at it now and I think now that I, you know, own a gym and have been training a very different way for the last 10 years, I feel like a lot of our training was really unsophisticated <laughs> and that, we could be so much more awesome. You know, we could have been so much more awesome if we'd had a more focused training schedule. But one of the things that I learned in my rowing career, um, and I think really paid dividends for me when I joined the national team was, you know, rowing is ultimately a full on suffer sport. You know, it's kind of, I mean, I, I don't want to say it's a low skill, but rowing seems to attract kids who maybe never like, excelled at field sports or maybe weren't the most coordinated. Um, but, you know, if you have some lungs and can suffer, you know, rowing is a great sport for that. By the time I joined the national team, I think I was 22 years old, you know, I'd already been rowing for eight or nine years. So I had a pretty decent training age already cardiovascularly. And I was really good at suffering. 
And actually, you know, that's actually one of my greatest ongoing skills, even as I've moved into the CrossFit world. I can tell you more about that later. But that ability to just put my head down and gut it out has really been very helpful to me in all my sports. But I mean, really, Kelly and I laugh. We look back, you know, we used to go to, I'm sure you probably did this too. You know, we used to go to Globo gyms and I mean, we literally would like Stairmaster for 45 minutes and then we'd go down to the weight room and do a bunch of who knows what we were even doing. And it, it was interesting. We, we were both really seeking, you know, we didn't really have a model and our coaches, I think, weren't very sophisticated at that time either, especially in terms of our paddling coaches were great at paddling mechanics and um, how to negotiate the extreme whitewater environment. But in terms of what we did on dry land, I look back and I'm like, God, we really could have been so much better, so much better. Well, in the 90s, strength coaches, conditioning coaches were not real prevalent for odd sports like what you were participating in. Okay, you know, football teams had a strength coach. The wrestling team, yeah, there's somebody training those guys. But for what you were doing, I couldn't see too many people going, yeah, I know how to get you in better shape for that. Yeah, no, it was. It was, it was, no one really had any idea what to do. I mean, all we knew is that we knew we needed to go into this super fit and how to get there was, you know, we experimented with a lot of different things. I mean, even when I look back on when I was a rower at Cal and some of the dry land training was that we did back then was just kind of funny. We did this thing. My freshman rowing coach was a um, national team rower herself, but we did this thing in the weight room that she called the fatigue circuit. And I mean, it definitely worked because I showed up at 135 pounds as a freshman. And then I was, by the end of my freshman year, I was 145 pounds. And it definitely was not the freshman 15. Like I like came home after my freshman year. My mom's like, oh my God, like, you know, (laughs) showed up just like totally jacked from doing this fatigue circuit all, all year. But basically we would just go from station to station to station in the weight room. And we would do basically one minute and you do get it, do it, show up at the station and the weights weren't super heavy, kind of mid heavy. And you would just do as many repetitions as fast as you could at that station and then move on to the next station. And I look back on that and I was like, man, what were we doing? What was that? You know, but we didn't know. I don't think really anybody knew. Yeah. <laughs> Your coach had a good idea. She just didn't have the right equipment. If she'd had a, a prowler or a sled or some sandbags or, you know, Right, right. You know, we ran a lot of stadiums and did a lot of fatigue circuit and, you know, we were fit and we were strong, but I, you know, again, and, and, you know, I think what's been so interesting, I mean, with the emergence of CrossFit and I think the real game changer in the fitness world has been the, the internet basically, because before everybody was kind of working in these silos and it was hard for people to share information. And now it's like, everybody is online talking about their training, sharing what they're doing about their training. And so, I mean, there's more information now than anyone can consume in terms of programming. And I don't know, it's just such a different world in terms of what's available. You know, I think if I look back at any of my coaches in the nineties and all the sports I was doing, and if they'd had all those resources available to them, they would have been so much more sophisticated in their programming. Well, it's kind of like a double-edged sword though. It really is. There's so much good information out there. But there's also so much bad information out there. And you can sit here and try and periodize and plan and calculate. And I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And are you going to train or are you going to just sit there in front of your computer figuring it out? (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, it is. It's hard to parse through what's useful information and what's good. And there's this kid at our daughter's school who has been riding a unicycle to school every day this year, which we think is so awesome. That's cool. 
It's so cool. And we were talking about how when we were kids, if you wanted to learn how to ride a unicycle, you'd get a unicycle. For, you know, if you were lucky enough, your mom and dad could get you one. And then you'd, you and your friends would get on the unicycle and hold on to the chain link fence and just try to work it out. And you would help each other. And you guys would talk about the best strategies. And eventually you would all learn how to unicycle. But now kids can go online and look at like 27 videos about how to ride a unicycle on YouTube. And they can go to a circus school and take unicycling classes. And, you know, it's like, I think Mm -hmm. that sort of experimental learning that we all did is gone because, you know, you can watch a YouTube video about how to learn almost anything. So, you know, I think that's really changed the way we learn. It's very cool, but it's also in a way sad because that experimental thing and learning new things by accident sometimes, I think that's more fun. I think that's more exciting. Not not to use profanity, but Kelly and his friends used to call it dicking around. <laughs> and even in early CrossFit, when we first started at our gym, we did a lot of that. Just experimenting with different, you know, movements and carrying weird, heavy things. And, you know, we just did a lot of experimenting like that, you know. And I think, I think, yeah, I agree with you. I think it's kind of sad. I think a lot of that is lost because it's way easier to just jump online and watch a YouTube video about it, <laughs> you know. Well, truth be known, that's still how I train new clients. I just started working with an 86 year old woman who finished her PT after breaking her pelvis. And I went, I've never done this before. Let's make it up as we go along. Okay. She can't do that. Okay. Let's try this. Okay. So yeah, I'm still just making it up as I go along. Yeah. (laughs) Same with us. Same with us. And you know, the other thing is we're, we're, uh, you know, for better or worse, we're so busy that, you know, we don't have time to, we just have to jump in with both feet and try things these days. So, and that's what we try. You know, we really try to encourage our kids to do that as well. I mean, we want them to spend time just messing around and learning things. I think that's really a more organic and a more fun way of learning rather than, like you said, sitting down and Googling and YouTubing. Obviously, that toughness that you were talking about, suffering, just putting your head down and doing it that you learned from rowing, served you well, not just in your sports, but probably got you through law school. Oh, yeah. I mean, I didn't really know what to expect with law school and it was actually the first time in my whole life where I, my first semester of law school was the first time in my whole life where I actually had trouble sleeping. You know, I'd been always just slept, you know, no issue sleeping. I could literally lay down in the dirt and sleep anywhere. And that was the first time I, you know, I had kind of a lot of anxiety because it was so unknown. And, you know, you go, every kid goes into law school thinking, yeah, well, I got into law school. I know I'm smart, but can I do this? I have no idea. So the first semester was definitely hard and I knew that I just kind of had to put my head down and work. Um, And after the first, you know, a lot, a lot gets sorted out in law school after the first semester, as sad as it is. Um, It becomes obvious after you get your grades after the first semester in law school, who's getting it and who isn't getting it. And that tends to not really change throughout law school. You know, if you finish your first semester in the top 10% of your class, chances are you're going to stay in the top 10% of the class, your whole law school experience. And so, you know, both with law school and with the bar exam in particular, my own personal mantra with the California bar exam was only once and that I was going to study seven days a week, 10 hours a day, because I was going to pass this thing on the first try. Um, and if, you know, and that kind of meant checking out of my life for two months while I was studying for the bar, but, you know, and just doing exactly what we talked about, just putting my head down and studying, but it was worth it, you know, because the California bar exam has like a horrible, it's the hardest bar in the country and it has only a 45% pass rate. 
And then your pass rate goes down dramatically if you don't pass the first time. So if you fail the first, you know, you only have a 45% chance of passing first go around. And then if you fail once, you have like a 25% chance of passing or something. And most of that is just because people get psychologically crushed by not having passed the first time. But you know, that that, you know, just that kind of putting my head down and working strategy has done me well in a lot of in a lot of areas of my life. You're exactly right. And law school is no different. And you know, I was able to relax a little bit after the first semester when I realized that I got it and I was gonna be fine and that I was actually gonna get a job when I graduated. And you know, a lot of that anxiety was put to rest after I sort of established myself as a functional law school student. But it was definitely hard and it put me out of my comfort zone at the beginning. Can you say super achiever here? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because my brother is also a major achiever for better or worse. Um, I think it has its positives and negatives for sure. You know, interestingly, I went to a reunion of my crew team from college and it was actually kind of a freaky experience because it was all, you know, it was probably 40 women who showed up who'd all been on the team in, you know, over like a three year time span. And mm-hmm. every woman, I mean, without exception, either had a PhD, an MD, was a, a lawyer or had an MBA and owned their own business. Like without exception, this was a group of women who what were all exactly exactly what you said, super achievers. And we all kind of noticed it and we're discussing with ourselves, you know, what came first? You know, are you does that the discipline of rowing is that something that just creates that lifelong discipline for you so that, you know, that takes you through your life? Or is there something about the personality of an achiever type person who's drawn to that sport? Who knows? But whatever it is, I'm not alone in in that group of people of, you know, just sort of going for it, you know? <laughs> so okay. we, we didn't, we, by the way, did not figure out an answer to that. We couldn't figure out which came first, but it was definitely interesting to see that everybody had kind of, you know, this was a group of serious achievers to a T. <laughs> That's impressive. It's obviously, uh, well, the skills, the ouch, the self-discipline yeah. and everything that the sport gave you carried over into every other aspect of everyone's life. No, no stay-at-home mom taking care of the kids while their husband works wherever. No, <laughs> that would not work. No, no, it doesn't sound like it would. So obviously, you've, you've been tremendously successful at pretty much anything that you've uh, set your mind to. You had a uh, successful legal career, and then you guys decided to open a CrossFit where where did where did that come from in 2005 crossfit was what were there maybe three or four crossfit gyms total in the country at that time yes and um you know interestingly we actually i think were the 25th crossfit to open but still you know not now i think there's what in 13 or 14,000 of them so there's I mean, 20 we really in my area on- Right, exactly. We were definitely on the extreme front end of the uh, front end of this movement. And as I was saying, you know, we were doing obviously throughout the 90s, Kelly and I and early 2000s, Kelly and I were both professional athletes and then even after we retired from doing that, you know, we're like, we are people who train every day. You know, this is like, we love to train. It doesn't matter where we are in the world. You know, we go on vacation, we still train. We love to train. We've always been tinkering with it. And I think Kelly was the first person to discover CrossFit. You know, he'd been reading books on Olympic lifting and different kinds of training and kettlebell training. And then one day he just randomly online finds CrossFit and he was blown away because it was the first time he'd really seen all these kind of different concepts unified in sort of one 
methodology. And so at that time we were still members of like a Globo gym. So we started trying out the CrossFit workouts at our Globo gym. And I mean, we really got crushed. I mean, we, we seriously thought we were like awesome athletes and here we are. We both had just come off the national teams. I'd won two world championships. You know, we definitely thought we were like pretty awesome at being athletes. And then we do a couple of these standard CrossFit workouts and we just got housed. I mean, we were sore for like a week and And I think it was very eye-opening for both of us because we realized that, yes, we were fit and, yes, we were good athletes and we had success in athletics, but there were massive holes in kind of our general physical preparedness, to use a CrossFit term. Um, And that was extremely eye-opening for us and also was so fun because we were – like I said, we were just in this, we didn't really have any inspiration. We weren't really following a program. You know, we knew we wanted to train because we enjoyed it, but we, you know, we just were not inspired and we found CrossFit and we were both hooked immediately because we realized that we had so many holes. There was so much to learn and it was just fun. It was so fun. So we just started doing these workouts on our own. And then Kelly decides to go on Craigslist and buy like we're broke at this time. He decides to buy like 150 pounds of weights on Craigslist, bunch of metal plates and a bar. And I was like, I don't know. Do you think this is a good idea? You know, are we ever going to use these? And we set it up, he, but he bought them. We set them up downstairs in our backyard and we started trying out the workouts in our backyard. And next thing you know, our, our neighbors who live upstairs are like, what are you guys doing? Cause they're, they like to train as well. They're like, what are you guys doing? And so they came downstairs and they started training. And then another friend of one of my lawyer friends started coming over. So all of a sudden, maybe four or five months after we first discovered CrossFit, which I think was in 2003 or four, very early on, we have like a small group of like four or five people in our backyard who are showing up on a pretty regular basis to do these workouts with us. And we were just having so much fun at this time. So one morning we're all out there in the backyard and we're, by the way, at this time living in the middle of San Francisco. So very densely populated area of like classic San Francisco row houses. And we're in the backyard, all of us one morning at six o'clock doing like ball slams and kettlebell swings. And one of our neighbors, we couldn't tell from which house just yells out and he's like, will you guys just shut up? He screams out of his window at six o'clock in the morning. And that's when we realized like, okay, maybe this location is not a sustainable location for us to be doing this. But, you know, at that time there were no CrossFit. So it's not like we could go sign up at a CrossFit and join and start doing CrossFit workouts that they didn't exist. And um, at that time, I think the only one in California was NorCal CrossFit up in Chico, Rob Wolf's gym. So Kelly had been working down in the Presidio, which is an old military base in San Francisco at a big sporting goods store. And in the back of their building, they had a 40,000 square foot open air enclosed parking lot. And so we were friends with the owners and Kelly said, hey, you know, would you guys mind if we just kind of set up a little gym back here? We can do our little CrossFit workouts. And, you know, they're like, great, no problem. That's, you know, there's nothing really happening in this parking lot. You guys go ahead and do it. So we bought a container and spent like, thousand dollars on some equipment and we just kind of invited some of our friends to come down and train and again we did not start this thinking this was going to be a business we really like we started because we loved it it was so fun for us to experiment with us with it and then we realized we needed to kind of formalize it because we couldn't do it in our backyard so we opened a little location and then after a few months of that we were like well maybe we should start a website and actually you know see if other people want to do this. So we built a really rudimentary website. 
and bought a little bit more equipment. And by this point, I, I was a practicing lawyer. So, you know, we, we had Kelly was in PT school. I was a practicing lawyer and we bought some more equipment and I'll never forget, you know, Kelly was down there coaching some classes and I was home one night and he came home and he said, yeah, you know, we had our first actual client and it was this guy, Anil, who we've remained friends with all this year. And I still, to this day, don't even know how he found us or found out about us, but somehow he found out that we were there. I mean, I guess through our website or something and he showed up for a class, like an actual client. And so a paying client. A paying client, you know, and I never forget because Kelly came home and said, yeah, you know, we had this Indian kid show up for class, a paying client, and he did the workout and then he barfed over. He barfed. So we had, so there we go. We have a paying client. And then we're like, okay, wow, we actually kind of have a business. But again, I'll tell you, even at this point, we were not thinking it was going to be a business. And we definitely were not thinking it was going to be like a way that we could support ourselves. This was not the mentality at all. And, you know, and there was no model for it back then. You know, I like to call it kind of the wild west of CrossFit. You know, nowadays you can open a CrossFit and you can talk to 500 other CrossFits and find out what member software they use and whether they have reception staff and how they train up their coaches and how they deal with the lease. And, you know, I mean, advice and information about how to own, start, own, and operate a CrossFit abounds. It's everywhere. Back then, there was no one and no one, no one entered it. And, and it felt very organic at that point. No one entered it to make money. You know, nobody, nobody in it. We all, everybody who started those early CrossFit started them because they thought CrossFit was fun and cool. And it was, such a different, unique way to train. And that's why we did it too. I mean, we really started it because we wanted to, we wanted to do CrossFit. We knew some of our friends wanted to do it and we wanted to create a space for that to happen. And it really wasn't for many years until we even thought that we could actually make a little bit of money from it. And so it, I think it was three or four years into running our business where, you know, for the first many years, Kelly and I both had other jobs. Kelly had a full-time physical therapy job. I was working full-time as a lawyer. We were just really running this as like a side passion project. And I think three or four years into it, we finally realized that Kelly should probably quit his full-time regular day job and just work at the gym and open a little physical, his own little physical therapy clinic within the gym. So We bought another container and Kelly set up his physical therapy clinic in another container, um, which has now lovingly known as the pain box. And, you know, it all really happened very organically. You know, we didn't have a business plan. We just were literally doing it because we thought it was awesome. And we wanted to include it in our own lives and share it with the people that we knew. And I think it was five years after we opened in 2010 that I actually left my law practice to run the gym full time. And also because by that point we had started mobility wad as well. So, um, you know, there was a point in time where I went temporarily insane because I was like, wait, I'm working this super high end billable hour lawyer job. And then like running the gym and mobility wad on the side. And it really wasn't until five years into the business that we were like, Oh, okay. Maybe actually what we're doing here can pay our mortgage kind of thing, you know? Um, and that felt very, you know, and it, and it felt like the right reason to start a business. I mean, we really started this gym because we loved CrossFit. We loved the methodology. It was so exciting, such a new and fun way to train. We saw all these amazing transformative results in our clients. Um, so it just, we felt like we were part of a really cool movement. Wow. This has got to be the easiest interview I've ever done. Ask her one question and just, I could have put my mic down, gotten a cup of coffee and come back and you would have still been going. (laughs) And the best part is it's interesting. I don't have to edit any of it out. (laughs) 
Imagine if you'd had Kelly and I both on here, it would have been, you're right. You were right to do us one at a time. It would have been a bit much. (laughs) I am a mere mortal in the presence of superhumans. Well, one thing that you had to your advantage when you were starting this is, you know, most CrossFit gyms are only open when there are classes. If you were trying to open a conventional gym, which is what I did for more than 20 years, you got to be there from six in the morning to six at night. Every CrossFit in this area, you know, has their couple AM classes, then they're closed until five o'clock in the evening. So that made it a little easier for you. Right. We were able, right. Because, you know, at the beginning, we, I mean, at the very beginning, we would have two classes a day one at 6 a.m. and one at 6 p.m., right? So we could both work our regular day jobs and, you know, offer, you know, just offer these two classes. And uh, you're exactly right. I mean, now, of course, it's a completely different deal. At, at our current gym, San Francisco CrossFit, I think we offer like somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 to 60 classes a week. And there's only about three or four hours in any given time of the day where there's not an actual class happening. And even during that time, our coaches are on site doing, you know, coaching private clients. So in that way, it has massively transformed, you know, our, our gym in particular is, is busy all the time. <laughs> well, when I was looking at the website, checking out your bio, I, I looked at the list of employees, coaches, and I went, oh my God, there's like 20 names there. I'm thinking, how many classes do you guys run? How big is this facility that you've got all these people working? You know, I, most, most CrossFit's got maybe three or four people working and you've got at least 20, 25 names there. Yeah, we, I think our staff is 25 and, um, you know, we actually have a management staff as well. So we have a, you know, in addition to Kelly and I, we have a gym director and then we actually have a front desk slash reception staff now. And then on top of that, we have about 20 coaches. And I will say, disclaimer, I, I would say we probably have about 10 true full, full-time coaches. Um, and then we have probably another 10 coaches who have multiple jobs. Like one of our coaches, Debbie, is a yoga instructor as well as a CrossFit coach. So she does both things. So we have we have a real mix of people. But I mean, I would say 25 may not give off the, the complete right impression. When you look at it, it looks like so many people. We probably have 10 true full-time coaches plus three full-time kind of business people, me and Kelly and our director, and then some reception staff. So, you know, it looks like there's a lot more coaches, but we also have quite, quite a few very part-time coaches. Well, still seven or eight classes a day. You said 50 to 60 classes a week. That comes out to seven, eight classes a day. That's a, a lot of activity. It may even be more than that. You know, I mean, we have classes from 5.30 to 10.30 in the morning. And for many of those hours, we have multiple classes at a time. So it's a lot. I mean, you know, the, the next time you come to San Francisco, you should come visit. The place is just pumping all the time. <laughs> it's very busy. I'm intimidated and I'm already, I'm 3,000 miles away and I'm intimidated. <laughs> Don't be intimidated. You know, we, um, we worked really hard, you know, especially early on, you know, when we first started our CrossFit and, you know, I'll disclaimer that, you know, obviously we live in extremely liberal California, San Francisco. And at that time I was working with all my super liberal, really smart lawyer friends. And I would say to them, Hey guys, I opened this thing. It's called CrossFit. And then they would go onto the website and conclude that I was part of like a neoconservative military cult because, you know, <laughs> it just, it was seemed so, it, especially early on, it seemed so extreme to people. And they were like, you guys are 
definitely crazy. And, you know, we never felt like that about it. We always just thought it was awesome. But we did, especially early on, have to really work to um, explain to people that this, one of the beauties of CrossFit is that it's really ultimately scalable for everybody. So, you know, literally on any given day at our gym, for example, my 70-year-old mother can be working out at the same time as my seven-year-old daughter. We saw at CrossFit for exactly what it was, which is totally scalable and totally appropriate for everybody. But that wasn't at the outset, that wasn't the initial impression. So we work really hard to create that environment. And, you know, even though it's a super busy gym, we've really tried to make it also feel really welcoming and actually kind of mellow. Like one of the things we don't do that a lot of CrossFit gyms do is like, we don't write people's times up on the board. We just don't really care. Our attitude is like, hey, you know, people are all here. You know, we have very few of our athletes who are professionals or training for anything serious. We just are the vast majority of our clientele is there because they also love CrossFit. They feel like they want to be healthy and this is the best way to do it. And, you know, obviously we care, you know, we want to create an environment where people can advance and be more awesome, but we also don't want to, we don't, we didn't want to set up an environment that felt competitive and unwelcoming and we never have. And I think that's a real kind of misconception about outsiders to CrossFit, you know, it, it can have kind of an aggro people. I think there seems to be an impression that it can be really aggro. And when you come into our gym and most of the gyms that I know, it doesn't feel like that. The vibe feels welcoming and it's kind of a place where anybody can work out. Well, I'm, I'm going to actually kind of go with what you were just saying, because this was a direction I wanted to go in and kind of, kind of be a little challenging because unfortunately most of the CrossFit situations I've been exposed to down here I wasn't wasn't real impressed with and obviously there's great gyms there's bad gyms there's great instructors there's bad instructors and my concern and I'm strictly a strength training bodybuilding more conventional you know strength and conditioning kind of thing CrossFit is just never particularly interested in me and I suppose the reason would be when I decided to get into kettlebell training, I hired a, a local RKC to kind of get me started in the right direction. And she was training me in a CrossFit gym and I was paying attention to her, but I was also observing a class with an instructor that was a Nazi drill sergeant. I mean, you had people <laughs> doing high repetition deadlifts, just banging the crap out of the bars. Um, just there was no concern for Form. People were, and I even commented to the girl I was working with, I said, those deadlifts, these people, she said, oh, don't worry, it's bumper plates, it's not going to do any damage. I said, maybe not to the floor, but what about their spines? Right, right. Across, you know, now that there's 14,000 gyms, I think the, the level of quality of gym can vary dramatically. I think often when I see that kind of workout being administrated, it's kind of in a newer CrossFit People figure out pretty quickly, gym owners do and coaches learn pretty quickly that that method tends to not really work well and doesn't. it also doesn't retain clients. I think people think it's kind of fun for a couple workouts, but it's not like the kind of environment where people want to join and be loyal, lifelong clients. But, you know, we've worked really hard and I think our big focus has been on you know, obviously movement and mechanics, but also developing, spending a lot of time developing our coaches so that we have, by the time they hit the floor to coach a single class, they're already journeyman level coaches. So in addition to requiring a lot of certifications, we also have a very intensive internship program where our coaches all have to shadow an assistant coach and take additional certifications for 
160 hours or more before they can even step on the floor on their own to coach a private client or a class. Um, and I think that model is becoming more pervasive throughout CrossFit. So I think a lot of CrossFit gyms are realizing that you can't just pop coaches right onto the floor with little or no experience and expect them to be able to really understand the sort of nuances of movement and mechanics and make sure they can manage a large group of people and do that all safely. So I think you're right. As with anything, there's you know better and worse places. Um, but I think as a movement, it has advanced so much. And I think there's way more gyms now that are carefully and conscientiously coaching classes with movement standards in mind. Um, so it's certainly been an evolving movement though. And, you know, again, across all those, you know, with that many gyms, you know, I think there's definitely going to be some who are not as awesome. (laughs) It just, it just has to be. And the number See, the, the the bad thing, I don't know what the franchise costs are, but the bad thing is it costs very little to open a CrossFit gym as opposed to a uh, conventional gym. You know, right. You're not investing a hundred, couple hundred grand just in cardio equipment. and So there's a right. lot of CrossFit boxes that just pop up. I mean, just in my area, right. I've seen several open. Six months later, they're gone. And Obviously, they didn't have much of a business plan. The people that were running it didn't have a clue. And it sounds like you guys are, are, you know, when you talked about scalability, that's the most important thing. And that, from my limited knowledge, and I'll be the first to admit, I have limited knowledge of CrossFit. My complaint always was the 40-year-old attorney who's 35, 40 pounds overweight and smokes is going to go in there and have a stroke based on what I've seen. So if you guys can scale what he's going to do down, he's not going to do a thousand uh, snatches followed by 50 kipping pull-ups followed by hitting the sled and doing, you know, 100 100, uh, pound, 100 yard sprints with a pushing sled or whatever. So the key is the scalability. It really is. And, you know, because my focus is always on the business side, that's just not a good business model. You know, crushing people, you know, we don't want people to get come to do a workout at our gym, especially at the beginning where they're so sore, they like can't sit on the toilet for a week. You know, that's just, just separate and apart from not being a good coaching and coaching model. It's really bad for business because it does, it's not a good way to retain people. I mean, by and large, the people who want to pay and do CrossFit are not CrossFit Games athletes. They're regular people, exactly like you said. They're lawyers and doctors and people who just want to be fit and healthy um, and enjoy the community and camaraderie of CrossFit. And, you know, the way to keep and retain members is to really own that scalability and take good care and teach people how to move well because they in the end really appreciate that and they still see the amazing results that CrossFit can offer but you're going to get lifelong loyal clients from doing that and so I'm not surprised that a lot of those gyms that just you know blow people out end up not succeeding because I don't think they you know they don't have a long-term vision in mind you know and uh, the long-term vision is creating a space where people can you know be members of your gym for 10 years. Like we have a lot of members that have been with us that long. And also, I also think, and I think one major advantage I have when I started CrossFit is that I'd already been practicing as a lawyer for eight years before then. So I think I had sort of a level of business acumen that maybe some CrossFit gym owners 
don't have when they start. And I think, um, and I think this is changing, but I think one of the things we've seen in CrossFit often is, you know, there's a lot of very well-intentioned coaches who are really excited about CrossFit and love CrossFit the same way we did. And they do exactly what you said. You know, they, there's a low barrier to entry and especially in probably places where, where you are, the commercial real estate may be relatively inexpensive. And, um, they just open up a shop real quickly. And I think a lot of, early gym owners are surprised because they think when you just look at a cross box, it looks very Spartan and it's like, well, this is just like a garage. I can do this. And in the end, you know what? It's a business and it's complex and to run it well requires a real careful attention to all the backend systems and making sure that people are taken care of and that you're responsive to people as a gym owner. I mean, this is one of the things like I wrote an article about this. This drives me insane. You know, one of the things I learned in my life and especially practicing law is that you don't always have to have the answer. You don't need to be able to respond immediately, but you've got to respond to people, especially clients, you know, people who might actually become a client or are a client. And, you know, I've emailed a ton of gyms and this is CrossFit gyms and not CrossFit gyms, yoga studios or whatever, where I send them an email about, Hey, I'm going to be in town and I want to drop in for a class. And I don't get a response back for like two weeks, you know? And to me, that's like the ultimate sign that whoever's running this business is not considering the business side of the business. Um, and so mm -hmm. I think that is changing. I think, especially in the last two or three years, there's been a lot more resources published online about resources and articles about how, how to actually run the business side of a gym. But I think you're right. I think it, it, because the barrier to entry has been on the low side, especially a lot of markets where the commercial real estate is cheap, I think a lot of coaches who maybe don't have the business skills, open gyms, not really realizing if they don't have the business skills, they're going to need to learn them like and fast <laughs> if they want to have a successful gym. And also you have to run, I mean, you know, you must know this as well as I do, but you know, the margins on a gym, the profit margins are slim. It's kind of, the gyms are kind of like a restaurant, you know, they're very expensive, the equipment expensive, especially where we are in San Francisco, the real estate is ungodly expensive. So the margins are very small in a gym. So if you're not running a really tight ship from a business side, you're not going to make money. And I don't care how passionate you are about CrossFit. If you own a CrossFit gym for three or four years and you never make money or you lose money or you have to keep a full-time job and run the gym on the side, you know, that passion starts to wane <laughs> if you're like not ever seeing positive numbers. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, it eventually becomes the place you hate instead of the place you love. Right. Exactly. And so, you know, and, and so, you know, most people don't start these because they want to make a ton of money. Um, but you have to, you know, at least be able to like pay your bills and your mortgage and the basics, you know, I don't think anyone goes into this thinking they're going to become a millionaire, but you know, I think you've got to run a tight ship if you want to make some money. Yeah. And as you say, there are so many <laughs> facilities when you talk about the ones that aren't responsive, you know, when you contact them saying you're going to be in town and whatever, you know, they, there's okay let's just google san francisco okay i'm looking for a gym okay these people didn't answer me well gee there's 20 more places to go i mean it's just bad business even if you know you take two seconds you respond great this is our our class schedule and you know oh oh i see okay you're you you own a gym out there okay absolutely be my guest come in and we're happy to have you it doesn't take that long but if they don't see the immediate dollar sign because you're just visiting from another place and you're not going to join, they don't see a value in you. Right, exactly. I say this a lot to my own staff and to, and I've written an article about it. I just, I think the responsiveness thing is a huge deal. And um, I, I think it shows that you're a pro. You know what I mean? I think 
if you can't get around to responding to your email, even though you're running a business for like two weeks, it just shows you're unorganized and not a pro. And if you email, you know, me or my staff, you're going to get a response quickly. And that shows that we're pros, you know, and, and then that, that makes people more excited to come because they know if we can respond to an email and we're pros on the business side and we can make things seamless for people, then, you know, chances are we've also taken that same value system into our coaching and programming and, you know, the front end side of the gym as well. Yeah, no, that there's no question about that. You uh, probably responded quicker than anyone else ever has to my request for an interview. It was like, wow, she's fast. Awesome. I like that. <laughs> well, good. I'm glad. I'm glad you didn't wait a few days because. Yeah. <laughs> no, yes. it, it's it's as soon as I get the response from somebody, I'm right back on it because doing this on a week to week basis and trying to have guests every single week lined up. It's not the easiest thing in the world. <laughs> no, yeah, and you, you know, you have, I'm sure all your guests are busy people with tons of things going on in their lives and, you know, they're not just doing one thing. So, you know, I mean, I think one of the things I struggle with and my friend Tim Ferriss has written a lot about this and, you know, I definitely struggle with not getting married to my inbox. I mean, that's also a thing I struggle with just personally because I don't know if you're like this, but I mean, I think it's easy for people like me and you and, you know, anyone who's kind of running any kind of business to just get stuck in front of your inbox <laughs> because, you know, if I go away from my inbox at any time, there's going to be 20 emails when I come back, you know? So I, I've had to, for me, I've had to work hard not getting married to that and actually trying to focus my email attention and then focus my attention on other things as well. Yeah, that is definitely a challenge. I used to years ago, uh, work eBay when the economy got bad and I wasn't doing any training or any massage and got in the habit of constantly doing being on my email because it's like I was, you know, working the whole eBay thing and that I was like that was tedious. And that's that is hung over still that I will check my email almost obsessively. It's like you just checked it ten minutes ago. Leave it alone. Yeah. There's nothing urgent. I've tried, you know, I, I appreciate, I think, you know, a lot of people recommend sort of literally putting it on your calendar, like scheduled twice a day, you know, at like 10 a.m. and 3 p.m. Or, or, you know, you just put like a one hour block twice a day and that's when you do your email and actually scheduling it on your calendar. And um, I recommend that and I think it's awesome. And I totally have not been able to do it myself. <laughs> but I, I aspire to do that in my life where I can really just be efficient a couple times a day, blocking out these chunks where I, you know, just respond to a ton of emails, get through it and then go do other things. Um, but you know, that's, that's something I have not mastered yet. Wow. I told you Juliet was a real high energy lady. Really enjoyed that interview. Just had a hard time keeping up with her. We'll be back with the balance of that interview next week, and we'll have her husband Kelly on in the near future to talk about his New York Times bestselling book and a few other great topics. Real quickly, I want to thank everyone that responded and turned out for my Hadley webinar yesterday, uh, the 16th of September, if you're listening to this somewhere down the road. And uh, it was a lot of fun. We had a lot of great questions. There was a nice group of people. And, uh, Really, really enjoyed that, and it was such a big success that the people at Hadley already asked me if I'd consider doing another one in the future, so I'm real pleased with that, and I wanted to share that information with you, and any of you that weren't there, go to the Hadley School and you know check out the uh, archived webinars and give it a listen. I'd really appreciate your feedback on it. You've been listening to the Real World Fitness Podcast. I'm your host, Bill, saying have an awesome week. See you soon. Real World Fitness is a production of the Serotalk Podcast Network in cooperation with Kosiabafitness.com. 
All questions, comments, and feedback should be submitted to resources at serotalk.com. If you're listening on a mobile device, use your iBlink radio app to submit an iReport. Promotional consideration paid for by audible.com. <laughs>